Welcome to Sober Solutions. We are a weekly recovery podcast, not affiliated with any particular 12-step or recovery program. However, you may hear us mention them. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Ben. I'm an alcoholic and addict. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 54, and we have a very special guest with us tonight. And Chris, I know you got a chance to talk with Martin a little bit before, so why don't you do his introduction? Thank you, Jason. Tonight we have a guest I've been very excited for for a few months. The listeners are in for a good treat. It's a story about tragedy, addiction, identity struggles, but more importantly, hope, strength, resilience, some forgiveness. And yeah, with that being said, I'd like to introduce Martin. Well, thank you so much, guys, for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. You guys have an incredible platform and you do a lot of good with it. So I'm really excited to be here tonight and share my story. So with that, just give a brief background of my childhood. I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And back then, it was essentially a war zone. It's a lot different today, thankfully. But back then, there was gangs coming up from California, fighting for territory. There were drive-by shootings routinely. There was prostitution and crime, and it was a cesspool. But thankfully, I had the good fortune of being raised with both loving parents under the same household. I have a twin brother, two older sisters. And my parents were very adamant about having my brother and I enrolled in Little League baseball and Cub Scouts and Pop Warner football and wrestling and all these activities that I think now that I think about it later, I think it was because he wanted to shield us from that chaos, right, in the streets. And so it worked until we got to high school. And I was a terribly shy kid, as a lot of kids are, but it it takes on a whole different you know, magnitude when you get to high school, because it's it's basically like a death sentence if you don't have anybody to hang out with. Right. And so that made me susceptible to pretty much doing anything that anybody wanted me to do in order to be accepted. And so this led to me gravitating towards some other kids who actually happened to live in my neighborhood at the time, but I had never met. And probably because my parents did everything they could, you know, to keep us from these kids. Nonetheless, this became my hangout crew, and like most kids, we did all sorts of things we should not have been doing. Um, I remember I went to a party at 14, and a guy we were hanging out with, he was extremely popular, wildly popular. He was a gang member. All the guys feared him. All the girls loved him, and, and we were able to hang out with this guy. So by proxy, we were popular, and I remember he had handed my brother and me our first beer at this party and we're looking at each other thinking there's no way we can drink this like mom and dad would absolutely kill us if they knew we were drinking but we did a quick mental calculation and 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 assessed that if we're going to hang out with these kids and be accepted with this group then we gotta we gotta drink right and so i remember i took a few swigs off of that can of beer that was utterly disgusting and i remember my chest heated up And then all my inhibitions came down and I could finally freely socialize with people without breaking out into a cold sweat. And I could actually talk to girls without fumbling over my words. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is a miracle drug that allows me to finally 
be the Martin that I've always wanted to be, but never felt that I could because I was so shy and timid and just definitely afraid of any social contact with anybody outside of my family. And so that was kind of my my first infatuation with alcohol. And so for the next couple of years, it became, you know, like just a social lubricant. And that was all fine and good until I turned 16 years old. And now I'm starting to drink for a totally different reason, because now I'm starting to have some real deep seated insecurities start to take root. And in particular, I, I struggled deeply with my identity. And so again, I'm at everybody's mercy to gain their acceptance. And so what that looked like in concrete terms was on one hand, I would hang out with my friends in the hood, wear the baggy gangster clothes, you know, talk the talk, you know, carry the handgun, sell the crack cocaine. And then meanwhile, I had a job where I worked at an ice cream parlor after school. So I would go there, hang out with all of my coworkers who were all white, and I would bring a spare change of clothes of Tommy Hilfiger and polo and, you know, the preppy clothes, right? And I would change my vernacular to fit in. And so I'm literally navigating between two worlds to gain people's acceptance. And I'm never really feeling entirely accepted in either one, if I'm being honest with you, right? Because I was never, I was never me. And so this led to some deep internal conflict. And um, it was just easier for me to drink because I didn't know how to cope with that. So that's when I became an alcoholic and I would lock myself in my room and drink in isolation and just kind of drown my misery in a bottle of brandy. So fast forward eight years later, at the age of 24, by this time I'm drinking and driving on a daily basis and never thinking anything of it because I'm working a job and I'm going to school in the evening and, you know, on the surface, things are looking okay in my life. But again, you know, I'm a slave to alcohol. And so this led to me partying all night on New Year's Eve of 2003. I ended up speeding through a red light and I crashed into a car and I killed two people and I severely injured another person. And at 24 years old, I'm hauled downtown for processing on two counts of manslaughter in the first degree and an assault in a second degree charge. And in Oregon, I'm keenly aware that these severe charges carry a mandatory minimum of 10 years day for day in state prison for each DUI manslaughter. And I've got two of them. And so aside from the fact that I'm going to prison for at least 20 years, I'm responsible for the deaths of two people I had never met in my entire life. So three days later, I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed someone had slid the state newspaper underneath my door. And I didn't understand why I didn't ask to see a paper, but I pick it up and I begin to read the section that I'm meant to read. And I start to discover that my victims were in recovery at the time of this crash. And they had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober. And in fact, they were on their way home from a New Year's Eve party that night when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnist had talked about the palpable irony that this would happen to these people. And what he said at the end of the article changed my life forever. He said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And so I didn't know what that statement was gonna mean for my life, but I was determined to figure it out. So for the next several months, I literally prayed about it. I meditated on that phrase. And then it finally came to me that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. 
if I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I can to ensure that something like this never happens again. So in that moment, that's what I vowed to do. And I'm sent off to state prison. I took a plea bargain for 17 and a half years, day for day. I go to prison. I thrust myself into an educational program that would allow me to, you know, hopefully get a degree at some point. I didn't know to get certified as a substance abuse counselor at some point. I didn't know, but I knew I was committed to the cause. And so with that, doors started to open up. And long story short, my efforts in prison culminated with a, a bachelor's in sociology and a master's in psychology. And then I got a state certification as a substance abuse counselor in 2019. And I started to really untangle and unravel my youthful motivations and the origins of my addiction and my, you know, subsequent, um, you know, self-destructive behavior and all these things that didn't make sense to me then started to make sense to me now. And so with that, I also began to tell my story at DUI victim impact panels within the prison in 2015. So I did that for the next six years until I got out. I was released from prison last year on June 28th, and I have spoken regularly at DUI victim impact panels throughout the state of Oregon. I do them remotely every month with trauma nurses. I speak to kids who have gotten their first minor in possession charge, so they're starting to get off on the wrong foot. I talk to them. I'm going to be speaking at some high schools here in Pennsylvania and as well as some, some driver safety courses through the uh, district attorney offices here in Pennsylvania. And I work as a substance abuse counselor today. I also work on the National Suicide Prevention uh, Crisis Line. And I'm able to connect people with resources in whatever locale they live in uh, to get them the help that they desperately need uh, when they're at their lowest point. And so in a nutshell, that is my story. That is my purpose. And that is why I am here. Wow. That was uh, very inspirational. Our stories are so different, but deep down, there's so much the same. I could relate heavily to being a chameleon and changing my clothes and changing how I talk and changing how I look with different groups. You know, I was a huge nerd in school and high school and I would hang out with the band. But then after school, I was on the basketball team, the baseball team, I had 12 varsity letters and I hung out with that group. And like, I would hide going in between. It was that internal struggle of that identity you talked about. As I was listening to your podcast today, one of the things that I really grabbed, and I actually rewinded it and listened to it twice because it was honestly one of the best parts of your story was the day of the sentencing. And if you're okay with that, if you can kind of talk about the people and kind of what they went through, that was one of the best parts of your story that I'd like the listeners to hear. Sure. So I remember like it was yesterday, um, escorted into the courtroom and it's packed. It had been nearly a year since the crash, three days uh, short of a year. And there's members from the media, there's members from the Mothers Against Drunk Driving community because these people were volunteers with them as well, ironically. There was friends and family on both sides. It's a packed courtroom. And I take a seat next to my attorney. He and the DA go through all the facts and formalities of the case. And then the judge announces it's time for victim impact statements. And I remember the first person to speak that morning was the lone survivor of the collision. And he was a, he was a middle-aged man and he was very slender in build. I vividly remember that. And before he spoke, all I kept telling myself was, Martin, make sure you look him in the eye when he speaks, because you at least owe him that much. 
But as this man began to speak, right, I was I was so overcome with shame that I, I had to look away and I just stared blankly at the table in front of me. And he proceeded to tell me, he said, you have no idea what you have taken from me. He said, I just proposed to my fiance that night in front of our family and our friends. And hours later, she died in my arms. Due to the severity of my injuries, I can't even play catch with my nine-year-old son anymore. And you, you're just a young man. And, and when this is all over with, you're still going to have your whole life ahead of you. But me, I feel like mine is over. And quite frankly, I wish this judge would impose the maximum amount of time by law. And so when he got done speaking, like I just tried to mentally brace myself for just the onslaught of, of condemnation that I knew was going to come from other speakers that morning, right? It was just destined to happen. Little did I know it was surprisingly the exact opposite that was about to happen because the next person that spoke that morning was the 15-year-old daughter of one of the victims who perished. And she started by saying, Mr. Lockett, I forgive you. I know you did not mean to do what you did that day. And a part of me feels sorry for your family because you're going to go away for a really long time and they're going to miss you so much. And I encourage you to hug your mom every chance you get because you never know when it could be your last. She went on to tell me, my mom was my best friend and now she will never see me graduate high school. She will never see me get married. And she will never see me have kids. And it, it, it kind of swept over me that when this young lady got done speaking, it had been near, nearly a year. And I just come to understand something that was that was beyond profound, which was I had taken away a lifetime of memories that will now never get to happen for one night of fun. So when everybody was done speaking, I stood up, I turned around and I addressed the courtroom with the following. I said, my indictment says that I acted with extreme indifference toward the value of human life. But I promise everyone here that my feelings have been anything but indifference since the day this happened. And I know it's not much consolation. I accept that. But I promise, promise to spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to prevent another family from feeling what you guys are feeling in this moment. So with that, I was I was escorted from the courtroom and 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 held for transport. Wow, Martin. I mean, I have chills right now. Um, what I'm hearing is so much inspiration, and what I'm just blown away by is the fact that you can be so inspirational and you took this moment and you didn't lean into that shame. You didn't lean into any anger that you had for yourself or for others. I'm just wondering how you were able to do that. What was it that you were able to say to yourself or really commit to, to turn away from that anger and use those 17 and a half years to turn into the person that you are today? It was a long process for me to come to forgive myself, if I'm being honest. I had turned to God and, and had asked for God's forgiveness. I believed that God had forgiven me. The victim's family members, as I just detailed there, had explicitly told me they had forgiven me, but I couldn't 
come to forgive myself, right? I took two beautiful human beings from planet Earth and they didn't deserve that. And so for the next three years, as much as I had wanted to totally throw myself into this calling and this purpose, like I wouldn't allow myself to kind of move on from it because I felt that in some way that would be a disservice to my victims. If I kind of, you know, not forget, but but I felt that it was it was critical for me to feel the pain of the punishment, right? That I had to, you know, dish out to myself for the month of December, every December for the first three years by vividly reliving every detail of that night, right? not allowing myself to have joy or, or to laugh or to go to the yard and work out or play sports or anything. Like it was a month of misery. And I felt that in some way that was me honoring them. But then I realized in, in that third year, I said, Martin, you made a promise and a vow to do everything you could. And so you're taking your energy in this moment for an, for an entire month and you're choosing to waste it. You are choosing to be in this, this self-pity and this, you know, just this miserable state. And so with that, I was like, I'm not gonna dishonor them by continuing to do this. I'm gonna pour all of my energy for 12 months out of the year into this cause and this passion and this purpose. So I had to break free of that self-condemnation to come to forgive myself. So that's number one, but it was a long tumultuous process getting there. The second thing is I often put myself, even today, I put myself in my victim's family's shoes. And I ask myself, if someone had done this to my loved one, mother, father, brother, sister, whomever, what would I want to be the final outcome for the person who had done this, right? Would I want them to merely go to prison for 17 and a half years, get out and go on with their life as though nothing ever happened? Or would I want them to utilize their time, understanding everything they can about their addiction, where they went wrong, you know, do a lot of reflection and introspection and all that good stuff, and then get out and be of service to others so that they don't follow in the same footsteps. So obviously it would be the latter. If that's what I would want the final outcome to be, then what excuse do I have to not do that every single day for the rest of my life? It's as simple as that. I can't imagine being in prison and dealing with those emotions and just having nowhere to go with them. And so in other podcasts that I've listened that you've been a guest on, I heard about this humanity that you found in prison. And can you just talk a little bit about that and what those 17 and a half years were like behind bars for you? Right. So initially it started off with my with my education and literally just pouring myself into that and working on my degree. And it also allowed me to be a tutor to other inmates who were working on their GEDs. So I would have these sessions, these math sessions and social studies sessions with these younger guys. A lot of them were younger coming in, gang members, you know, you name it. And but we had this one on one time, right, to do something constructive. And they saw how consistent I was in the way that I did my time. And I wasn't, you know, walking around with these gang members or hanging out with this clique or trying to be the tough guy. Right. And so they respected that because I, I was different. So what that led to was I would be walking around the track or working out by myself. I did a lot of time by myself on purpose and they would start to confide in me. They would open up about childhood traumas or fears or why, how they got into a gang in the first place or what they wanted to do when they got out of prison, right? And talking about their futures and their desires and their goals. And this was stuff you could not 
understandably, just talk to anybody about in prison, right? You cannot be vulnerable. You you don't want to be a target and all of that. But guys found that safe space in me. And so that kind of allowed me to start to see guys for who they were, meet them where they were, and then start to start to talk about these, you know, real life issues and, and, and how they could start to reframe and reshape the way they saw themselves, right? That they didn't have to be this, this construct of labels that, that society had thrust on them or that even their parents had thrust on them, that they could be whoever they wanted to be, right? Now's the time to start to reshape and remold yourself. And so that was really, really rewarding. And then I got to be a part of some some just amazing programs with guys who were you know they would do fundraising events literally raised that they just raised I'm, I'm in communication with guys today and they just raised 55 or 5600 dollars for ukrainian children refugees these guys do these awesome fundraisers where it's pizza or burgers or you know whatever car shows on the yard and and they'll raise all this money and then they'll donate it to a, a women's a battered women's shelter, right? I'm thousands of dollars. You know, we're not talking two or three hundred bucks. I've seen them donate ten thousand dollar checks to organizations all across Oregon. There's so much altruism that exists behind bars, and these are from guys who are never going home. These are guys with double murder sentences that they got when they were 18, and now they're 52, right? They are not the same people. They have gone beyond just coming to terms with what they, you know, what they've done. But now they're like, how can I pay this forward? How can I improve the lives of some of these young guys around me who are going to get out and go back to their communities and society? How can I improve their life and give them a chance? It's not, I don't have one basically, but they found a purpose even within the prison setting, right? Where they're never going home. So it was, it was, it was a very eye opening, humbling, deeply gratifying experience to say the least. You talk a lot about being vulnerable in jail and how, you know, that's not a really common thing. Also, how the guys that would be vulnerable with you, you know, had that relatability. Can you touch on recovery within a jail setting? You know, I, I didn't even have this as one of my questions, but I'm really interested in how people recover within the jail setting. Sure. So they have AA and NA volunteers from the community who come in every weekend. And I didn't get involved in that until about 2016. At this point, I'm like, what is that? 12 years into my sentence. And honestly, if I'm being honest, because I had a master's degree by this point, I learned all this psychology. I had assumed that I was in recovery, right? I haven't drank in 10, in 12 years. I, I know about all these, you know, big psychological terms, $5 words. So I'm good. Little did I know, like, you go to AA and, you know, these guys will call you on your stuff quick, right? And these are guys with, you know, 30 years clean and stuff like that. And so I really started to learn about the steps and I was already, you know, going to church and stuff like that. So the whole higher power thing didn't bother me. I know it does some people, but I just really started to learn about relapse warning signs and triggers and not just people, places and things, but then internal triggers. And, and to understand that people don't just relapse overnight, right? There's a series of events. Um, there might be mental compromises that you start to make. Uh, you start to slack off a little bit here, a little bit there. And before you know it, you know, you're going down a slippery slope. So I really start to learn about a lot of the nuances to recovery, right? And then I got into an actual substance abuse uh, program. 
it's sad to say that 80% of those of us who are incarcerated in the United States, state and federally, have some issue with drugs and or alcohol. That is no secret, well documented. However, in the state of Oregon, at least, I don't know about any other state, only about 5% of the MA population has access to a substance abuse treatment program, which is an atrocity. And I'm, I'm going to be working with my job and the higher ups to see if we can we can address that. But that's another story for another day. But I went through this seven month long program and learning about, you know, the biopsycho social spiritual model of recovery and, you know, these, um, you know, the, these anchors of recovery that you need to have in place. And, you know, again, identifying these internal triggers and the warning signs before the relapse and just really understanding the thoughts and the emotions and everything that goes into maintaining the recovery. And so then I'm, I'm having an opportunity to now mentor with these guys because now I'm working on the clinical hours to get my certification. So I'm mentoring guys one-on-one -on -one and talk about, man, you talk about childhood trauma. I mean, guys would open up about molestation, being sexually abused as kids, which started them early with using drugs and alcohol, which started their, 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 their criminal behavior, right? And there's such an overlap between criminal and addictive behavior. There's all these you know, minimizations and rationalizations and, you know, erroneous thinking patterns. So I'm learning about all this stuff. So I'm taking my lived experience combined with my education and now the knowledge and the tools from this treatment program. And I'm pouring all of that into these guys in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And then I'm starting to lead the group. So I'm teaching 12 to 15 guys in a group setting for an hour and a half, five days a week, getting those clinical hours and understanding the, the you know, the clinical skills behind being a professional in this field but that relatability because i'm still wearing the same uniform that these guys are wearing so even though i'm their counselor right they would absolutely listen and they gave me that credibility right and and so it was a very rewarding experience i'm so humbled by the amount of trust the sacred trust that guys would instill in me to talk about things they hadn't talked about with anyone with anyone and I'm still in contact with some of those guys today. Again, I keep in contact with about eight to 10 guys uh, who are still doing time. And um, it builds me up as much as I build them up. They build me up uh, just the same. You know, speaking of building up and staying strong and staying connected, you mentioned higher power and you talked about prayer and meditation. I'm really interested to know how you kept your faith or kept your connection to your higher power throughout your entire experience. So I know that when I embarked on this journey, you know, I felt that God had put it in my heart to honor these people's lives by doing this work. Right. And again, I had no idea how that was going to happen. If it was going to happen and slowly but surely doors started to open. So this is how I knew God was on my side. A year into my sentence, I lose the girlfriend that I had. We had been together two years and she swore she was gonna stay by my side. And I told her she can leave. She said, oh no, I'll stay. I promise I'm not going anywhere. Well, that's a lot to ask of anybody. So she leaves and I'm crushed. I mean, I'm literally crushed. I don't go to eat for like three days. I can't get off my bunk. I'm depressed. I still got 16 years left. I put my ad on a prison pen pal website, just looking to have outside contact, not looking for anything romantic. Two months in, I get a letter from a woman who has saw a documentary on inmates and how one simple letter can brighten an inmate's entire day. So she's got one of the biggest hearts she'll ever meet. So she writes a paragraph or two saying, hey, I saw this documentary, just thought I'd make an inmate's day. I hope you're having a good day. And that was that. 
Long story short, we exchange letters back and forth. We start to talk on the phone. She gets on a plane from Pennsylvania, 2,500 miles, comes to see me a year later. And she, for the next 16 years, did that every six months. And we have been together. This is where I live now. So I moved from Oregon to Pennsylvania to be with her. Um, it's been incredible. Life has been incredible. So that was my angel. She was behind all the degrees and the books getting published and all of my aspirations. And so, again, I knew that God had placed her in my life. And then all these doors started to open and things happened that just don't happen to guys in prison. And so that's how I knew that this was a divine orchestration. And so there was no way I could turn my back. Secondly, just really quick, everything that I had tried to do on my own to that point had failed. So what did I have to lose, you know, to put my trust into a higher power, something beyond me to gain strength from, to gain guidance from, to make sense of things that I just couldn't make sense of. There was nothing for me to lose in that because me relying on everything that I thought was best for my life had ended in utter disaster. So what do I have to lose? I think that's a, a great point. And either with sponsees or friends of mine in the program, they always talk about this hesitation for believing in this higher power. And I think that's a great point. You know, what do we have to lose by believing in something that has more power than I do? Because... I think you said it best that when I try to do things by myself, I always failed. And my story does include some jail time, not as long as, as yours, but in there, I would just listen and it would be me and myself and this thing that kept me safe. I was in a horrific crash that I caused and it wasn't with anyone else but I came out of it unscathed. I don't know what kept me safe, but when I start to go through my program, I saw all those little pieces of God moments that got me through this, and somehow I'm alive today. I have no idea how. With the amount of drugs and alcohol that I put into my body, all of the bad decisions that I made, how am I still here? And to say, you know, what do I have to lose to believe in something that's just not me? I think that's so well put. Your story could be any of us, right? For, I don't know, six years of me using, I drove high every single day. This is something I still haven't really dove deep into, but I drove high with my child in my car. You know, like that could have been me. It could have been you, Jason. It could have been anyone we've been to rehab or go to these meetings with. And it's not even just driving drunk or high. And, you know, obviously we're, that's the story today, but today, as I'm listening to your podcast, I'm taking notes and writing. And then I heard your story and I got to the part of the car accident. I immediately put my pen down. I'm like, what am I doing right now? And it just was a wake up call. It's like distracted driving too. It's tough, right? Your story could be anyone. And at that minute, if I'm taking a note, like their family does not care that I was taking a note to study for a podcast or whatever. Like you said, it could end a lifetime of memories. You're at this point where you're inspiring people. Is there an area in your life where you still do struggle with and if so, what tools do you use at this point with all these years of sobriety behind you? I always want to remember that, that like I have to continue to do the work to see the results. 
we've got so much clean time and, you know, we've had these successes and we put this good string of life together, then we feel like we can kind of rest a little bit, right? We don't have to go as hard because, well, you know, I've kind of arrived, right? But I'm telling you, like, addiction loves intelligent people because intelligent people always think that they have it licked. They always think that they're one cut above the addiction, that they can outsmart the addiction. And I'm telling you, like, so, so my main thing is I have to daily remind myself to stay humble, to stay grounded, and to understand that I am one drink away from that guy under the bridge with a paper bag. Like, literally. And I say that because a lot of people will kid themselves and think or, or delude themselves and say, well, I'm not that much of an alcoholic or I'm not an alcoholic because I'm not that guy, right? We always want to point to somebody else and say, well, I'm not him, I'm not her. Or I'm So talk about a struggle. It's not so much a struggle, but it is something I am very cognizant of and I have to remind myself of and not allow myself to get complacent because complacency would be the very first relapse warning sign if there ever was one for me. I totally agree. And in fact, I seek outside help. I have a therapist and I was actually just talking to my therapist about that today, how I love chaos. And that's just who I am as a person. It's so comfortable for me. And now over the last 25 months of me being sober, I have found this routine. And my routine is go to bed at 9 p.m., wake up and go to the gym, and then go play with the dog, and then go to work, and then do this, and then do that, and then go to bed at 9 o'clock. And, and I have this routine, and it feels weird for me right now because I feel like I'm plateauing. And what we were talking about today is it's not about plateauing or that fear of complacency, but it's the fact that I'm staying consistent. And the other thing that I recognize is how I am in that place where it's like I haven't been keeping that that freshness in my program, too, you know, and, and you know, I, I have the master's degree and I'm getting a second master's. And so when you were talking about that level of intelligence where I feel like I know what I'm doing, it really hit home for me. The next thing I want to kind of just jump into is what it's like coming back into the world. I've heard you talk about it, and I'd love for you to just share that with our listeners a little bit. You came out into the world in the middle of a pandemic, so that must have been uh, new, um, as it was new for everyone. But, you know, coming out after 17 and a half years, what was that like for you? So the biggest thing was adjusting to the technology, right? And, I mean, just when I went in, we had the little... Nokia phone, the little touch button. I mean, there were no cameras on the phones. I think there was MySpace was the social media that was going on back then. And and so it was, I mean, you have cars that can park themselves. And, you know, I, I wrote an article for the Oregonian before I got out. And I'm like, when I went in, it was, you know, baggy clothes and now it's skinny jeans. And culturally and, and politically, everything has changed, right? On a personal kind of, you know, simplified level. So going into a grocery store, like there was so much stimuli because in prison, everything is drab, right? The walls are gray and, you know, the uniforms are gray and black and like there's not a lot of colors, right? 
And I remember I'm in the grocery store and there's stimuli everywhere. There's advertisements and, and, and bright colors. And I'm going down the aisle and there's like 50 types of deodorant and soap and cereal. And I'm like mind blown because for 17 years, I only had to order from a little commissary sheet of like five different selections of this and three selections of that. And so just, you know, having to now process and and, and make decisions on something as small as that was taxing. And then I remember like it was yesterday, I heard a baby cry. And to hear that baby's cry for the first time, it made me realize that I had not heard that sound for almost 20 years. And most people will hear a baby wailing and they're like, you know, they're getting agitated. Oh, keep that baby quiet, shut that baby up. And to me, it was the most welcomed sound. And so it was, it was, it was a lot to adjust to. And I remember for the first three weeks, you know, I thought I was going to eat all this food and I couldn't wait. And I, my fiance was concerned. She was with me the first three weeks. She had flown over to Portland and we would go out to these restaurants and I would eat like half the food. And I, and I couldn't eat anymore. And she was like, Martin, are you okay? Like, I, you know, I, and my, my stomach just wasn't used to that. So that was an adjustment. Like everything was an adjustment. And so I made sure to kind of allocate my time to where the first half of the day we would take care of business. And then the second half of the day was relaxation, family time, you know, chill out. But literally for the first two weeks, I was so mentally drained. Just not from having done anything other than live life, right? But again, you're going into a totally new world. So, and it's still an adjustment today, you know, uh, especially technologically. I'm only on Instagram as the only, and everybody's like, oh, you got TikTok, you can put your story on TikTok, and you got Facebook. And that feels overwhelming to me. So I'm sticking with kind of one thing at a time. And maybe in six months or a year, I'll explore something else, but I'm still pacing myself 14 months later. What a great correlation to what it's like getting sober. You know, you were just talking about all of these new experiences that you are going through. And it just reminded me of what it was like after I got out of rehab and I had to live my life as a sober person. You know, hearing that baby cry and finding gratitude in that or having the ability to walk through a grocery store and having to navigate past certain sections or have the ability to pay for something. And, you know, it's, it's just a, a great correlation for me. Um, you know, throughout your story, I, I've taken away so much from it. And I'm interested to hear, you know, what's one thing that you would want our listeners or the people that hear your story to take away from this? I would just say that no matter where you find yourself, um, in your recovery or your addiction, and things seem like there's an obstacle that may seem insurmountable, right? There's just no possible way you can see your way through this. It's utterly, you know, your rock bottom, and there's just no way. And I would just say that you don't have to see the whole staircase. All you have to do is take the first step, and you don't have to take that first step alone. There is help out there, and particularly you can dial now, you can dial 988. If you are having a behavioral crisis, if you are struggling with your addiction and you want help, you can dial 988. You will talk to somebody like me or one of my wonderful colleagues or whatever state you are in to get that help on the other end. That ear who will be compassionate, 
who will be empathetic and who will be able to connect you with resources to get you on your way. Again, just take that first step. You don't have to see what the ending looked like. You don't have to know how it's all going to play out. But I assure you, the life that awaits you on the other side of this storm is a beautiful rainbow. And I just want you to be able to experience it like the rest of us have. Excellent advice. And I think that's a perfect way for us to end tonight. Martin, it was incredible to get to talk with you and share your journey with us. And I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It was really an honor to be here. Yes, thank you, Martin. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night, guys. Have a great night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.